This is uh, Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's topic is a discussion on syncope. We are joined by Professor Paula Sandroni, who is professor and chair of the section of autonomic neurology in the Department of Neurology. She's also a department uh, chair of the Mayo Clinic Mankato Neurology Division. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Sandroni. Thank you for having me. Dr. Sandroni, as a, as a general internist, one of the most scary things that you would hear during the discussion, or even when you see a patient, is somebody gives you a history that I just passed out. A lot of time, this causes a lot of anxiety because the nature of the symptoms and the entire collapse of a human being is so dramatic. It brings into attention so many people to care for such a patient that this becomes a very important topic. Over the decades, uh, people have talked about it, but I think more recently there has been a very great deal of work in your area, neurology, general medicine, cardiology, to come to a consensus on what syncope is. So just to start the topic, what is the general definition of syncope? Syncope is a syndrome that's characterized by a sudden, transient, complete loss of consciousness that leads to a loss of postural tone as a result, probably by the fact that there is a cerebral hypoperfusion. In absence of features typical of other form of loss of consciousness, such as epileptic seizures, by definition, the recovery should be spontaneous, prompt, and complete without any postictal type symptoms that are much more common, obviously, with seizures. It's an extremely common manifestation, and the true incidence and prevalence, it's uh, probably unknown in reality in the sense that everyone agrees there's probably a big underestimate because some patients never come to the medical attention. Happens, they say, oh, okay, I didn't drink enough, it was too hot, it was too tired, and that's it. It's a one-time deal, but a good estimate is probably in our lifetime, each one of us has a very good chance of passing out, probably 30%, maybe more, and usually patient with syncope, unless it's a recurrent phenomenon, it's usually monosymptomatic and self-limited, unless, of course, there is a major underlying condition that's responsible for this. That's great to know that it's monosymptomatic, but also more important from what you suggested, it's very important to know how this happened, the history around it. It's important that the patient who has syncope has no recollection most of the time of what happened. It's probably the people around them. And even if you recollect, it might be an inaccurate recollection of what led to it. So what kind of questions uh, would you be asking the relatives or the patient, which would help us in coming to understanding what caused the syncope? You absolutely nail it. It's a really the most difficult aspect to get a good history. And you are obviously uh, at the mercy of the patient recollection as well as if there were witnesses which may have seen it, but not the beginning. So it changes completely the, the scenario. For me, generally, the most important thing is understand, first of all, what position was the patient? What was the patient doing? Was the patient sick in any way that day? Was there anything unusual that had happened? 
were they again dehydration is a big thing was this a completely new phenomenon for them or they had something like this in the past it's not uncommon for a patient particularly with vasovagal syncope to say I used to be a fainter growing up when I was a teenager, and then I was fine, and now I'm 65 or 80, whatever, and happens again. That usually helps. There is a pretty strong uh, chance that those will recur. And then there are patients, there are very specific situations, such as uh, deglutition syncope, patient that faint when they cough. Usually there is a cardiopulmonary compromise at that point, like patient with COPD, or patients that faint when they are doing a Valsalva, so when they're straining. So all those things need to be ascertained. And then the other thing is to say, okay, what's the last thing you remember? Do you remember feeling hot, cold, clammy? Did you have butterfly in your chest? Or you just felt everything went blank? And then, of course, asking others they may have witnessed, were they pale, were they flushed, were they sweaty? Did they have some motor activity, which obviously it's very important because you can have convulsive syncope, but in that case, the jerking starts after the patient passes out, not before. So sometimes the timing can be very difficult to elucidate. And then uh, there is a typical uh, other manifestation that one can have, including uh, loss of control of your sphincter. That can happen both in syncope and in seizure, but tongue biting definitely points to seizure, not syncope. On the other hand, you have also to be careful because if the patient faints and fall and hit their face, they may bite their tongue as part of the fall, not as part of the actual phenomenon. So again, it takes a lot of legwork to figure things out. What I read was that the tongue bite, it had a specificity of 96%. Correct. And a positive likelihood ratio of 8.6. I'm just reading some of the numbers. And a tongue bite is very suggestive of a seizure was the cause of syncope. And it's very different from what you're saying. That would you get tongue bite with a post-syncopal seizure too? Or that no, would be very no, unusual? no, no. What I meant is if the patient, because obviously with syncope, the patient fall, they may injure themselves. Yes. So I had a patient that fell and landed on the face. And so there was still injury to the tongue, but was as part of the fall, was not a primary event. And no, if I hear tongue biting, I immediately think seizures. When you are seeing a patient and you, you got a very good history, what are the usual causes of syncope? Well, the big groups is definitely neurally mediated syncope, which includes the reflex syncope. I would say the biggest groups are the vasovagal, the situational syncope, the sight of blood, uh, stress, strong emotion, and carotid sinus syndrome, which is more common in the elderly and is due to usually pathology at the carotid area. And then you have vasodepressor syncope. And then you have all the orthostatic type uh, uh, syncope. So you have the range from a disorder of reduced orthostatic tolerance that the patient may complain of pre-syncope. And if they stay long enough, they might develop syncope. And then you have the classic orthostatic hypotension. And then there is the group that's a more traditional cardiac syncope, which can be due to either irregular heart rate, bradyarrhythmia, structural pathology, or cardiopulmonary pathology all combined. Those are obviously the more severe forms, 
But as you had pointed out at the beginning, we're talking, the estimate is probably 15% of patient has a primary cardiac syncope and well, 85% are all the others. That's right. So most of the syncope, I mean, even though you can never predict who is getting what, you do have to take an excellent history. Coming to the history of medication, so the medication history is also very important. You talked about the orthostatic hypotension, you know, taking diabetics and other antihypertensive medications. What are the other groups of medications uh, which you would ask, maybe the first four or five groups? Definitely tricyclic antidepressants, because they're anticholinergic, they can cause a lot of problem with orthostatic hypotension. Anything that can alter vasomotor tone, so alpha mm-hmm. agent, calcium channel blocker that can alter rhythm, sedative. Patients sometimes forget that uh, even simply a Tylenol PM contains uh, Benadryl, basically. So they may take it because they want to go to bed and fall asleep. Then they took it up, go to the bathroom, and boom, and they fall. Particularly the elderly, the tolerability of those medications goes down dramatically. And I think we are seeing quite a few of those. Any uh, drug that will suppress uh, the, the central nervous system, so sleep medications, sometimes even anti-anxiety meds because it may contain benzodiazepine or patient might use benzodiazepine for other reasons. So all those can contribute. Those will be the biggest groups. Is vasovagal something we are intrinsically prone from by our physical characteristics or as you mentioned, in our lifetime, anybody could have vasovagal syncope? Definitely there are people that are more prone to that and I think everyone as a kid, if they have a, a very strong emotion, uh, might faint. It's just a, create a, such an adrenaline surge that first causes the tachycardia and then has a sudden vasodilatation. It's really back to the concept of how we respond to, to stress. Either you play dead or you fight, right? So each one of us is our own personality. So you may be more prone to have a cardiac arrhythmia due to adrenaline surge as opposed to faint. But to some extent, it's something that can happen to anybody. But more people are obviously much more susceptible. And that's just the way we are. If you have all this syncope, what is the typical course? Is it in seconds or minutes? How long are the patients supine? I mean, if they faint, how long do they have loss of consciousness? Most of the time, we're talking seconds. If you think more than a minute, you start to question what we're dealing with or can be a syncope, but more a secondary syncope, one or more, I shouldn't say secondary, I should say a more dangerous syncope. So again, somebody that had an asystole for a minute. These should be really seconds, but again, consciousness the moment they hit the ground. Could functional causes of syncope also last for more than a minute or so? Most definitely. When you have a patient that tells you, I was out for 20 minutes or even five minutes, other things obviously would be, I could hear everything, but I couldn't move and I couldn't answer. That's a big flag. Or they may have had some uh, tremulous movement that was irregular, was not the true myoclonic activity that is typical of convulsive syncope. Or they may resist eye opening or interaction with others. So there are usually quite a bit of clue when we're dealing with a functional event. Having said that, there are some patients with other conditions such as cataplexy uh, that needs to be recognized because they may 
really look like a functional patient sometimes. So you need really to get the story of everything else that goes with that. And some unusual frontal uh, seizure patient can have a very unique phenomenology that has fooled more than one clinician. And of course, uh, a, a good thorough cardiological evaluation to hear for heart murmurs and pulse. What kind of testing should we first do? Do these patients need, all of them need blood tests or what kind of tests do we need to do? I think it really depends upon how good a history you can get. If you have a good history and you know already that you're thinking this is going to be vasovagal, you can almost do nothing. Okay, everyone will get an ECG and some blood drawn in the emergency department. I don't think you can escape that. But it's really what you think was the actual event that drives your testing. I would say getting obviously basic level to making sure the patient didn't have a internal hemorrhage that nobody was aware of, fine, ruin out that they don't have blood sugar of 10, an ECG baseline, and troponin, I think, are going to be drawn. If those are okay, I think we can pretty much let the patient go. Everything can be continued as outpatient. Uh, nobody needs a brain MRI or ultrasound of the carotid or anything unless they have something neurological on exam. I think measuring orthostatic blood pressure is a very cheap test and can give some answer, but probably I will stop there as a first screening thing, unless again, the test or the situation makes you more concerned that there could be something more structural going on. Can you identify a patient based on their medication listing or based on their chronic disease to reassure them that this may happen or may not happen again? That's a little difficult because unfortunately, uh, if you're prone to vasovagal syncope, it can happen again. So the question is if the patient can identify specific triggers or specific circumstances, some patient will learn very quickly that they cannot uh, fall behind with their fluids, for instance, or they should avoid the super high stressful situations. So every patient needs to learn to live with themselves, really. And if the patient continues to have recurrent episodes, even if we realize that there isn't an underlying major structural condition that's worrisome per se, but having syncope is not good either. You may fall in very inappropriate circumstances and injure yourself or happen if it happens when you're driving, well, enough said. So that's when we still need to treat them. So the fact that we say, okay, by itself, it's a benign entity, we needed to clarify what we mean by that. It's not the event per se that may be benign. It's that just there isn't a major underlying life-threatening condition. Doesn't allow us to be completely blase and just say, nah, nothing wrong with you. Go on with your life. Also because after a single polydentity, they can drive for three months. Most patients don't like that. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, it, does it hold true even for vasovagal syncope? Uh, if it's a one-time deal, probably not. But if it starts to happen again, you have to. Okay. So uh, I think you're almost kind of covering the entire scope of syncope with the patient. You've specified something very important, which is something which has been grossly unmanaged in the past, not represented well, is the detailed history taking. So I found that the EKG has been added to the list and a CT and an MRI should not be done. Correct. 
Uh, there is uh, no evidence that the CT is one of the most cost ineffective for syncope itself. As an astute physician, what, what are the things that I, I need to watch when a patient comes to determine, no, no, this is a much more sinister cause and the patient needs to be admitted? First of all, I'm always more worried if the patient is elderly population type patient, because then I start thinking the structural pathology from a cardiac standpoint or cerebrovascular pathology could be contributed to the events. The other group that I'm concerned is when the syncope occurs in a setting of physical exertion, physical activity. When we're talking that maybe definitely the young population, those could be the long QT patient, the genetic forms. I mean, I think uh, if any of us uh, soccer lover like I am, I watched the, the most recent European Cup and saw the Danish player collapse on the field. I think my heart stopped when I, I saw know. that. Then we know those are definitely conditions that you want to investigate very aggressively with Holter, with King of Heart monitoring, with EP study, you just go at that point the whole nine yard because you know that that patient is definitely mm -hmm. high risk. Those probably would be the biggest situation where I would be nervous. Otherwise, of course, is when I think that the syncope has more a neurologic cause and I'm not talking neurogenic syncope, I'm talking seizures, things like that. And so then I go down the path of imaging and EG inpatient monitoring, sometimes it's uh, very difficult to, to differentiate if you have the patient on monitor with EG and ECG and video all at the same time. You're absolutely right. Uh, that's where the good history taking and then the instinct of a physician or a neurologist to see uh, when not to send the patient home soon. But there are still some blind areas, which to me, blind means uh, things which are not automatically, it comes in my mind. When do I suspect a carotid hypersensitivity as a cause of syncope? Patient has to be, what are the characteristics they need to have? Can I even diagnose it the first time they come or is it usually picked up if you they present a couple of times? Usually our patients, again, usually our uh, older folks, and the story is they shave, so they push on the neck, boom, they, they faint. Or they turn their head too quickly. Maybe they had a tight uh, collar uh, or tie, or for whatever reason, they were massaging then their neck because they were sore and uh, they passed out. That usually it's a pretty good story. Usually we can get it. I mean, obviously not 100%. It's not a very common condition, but we see it. But do they have to be elderly or it can be middle-aged also? can be middle-aged. I mean, usually there is a, some pathology though at the carotid like, level, it could be a glomus tumor. So in that case, yeah, technically can happen in even a kid. It's a really the story that something got to compress the carotid area in one way or another. More recently, I read about uh, the Canadian syncope risco. This was made predominantly for patients or aged 18 years or more who presented with syncope in the emergency room. And then they had to make a determination of the prognosis, who have good prognosis and who have which are the patients with worrisome prognosis. This score is used in some of the emergency room. I haven't seen it used as frequently, but uh, we have to see for further validation if this becomes one of the scores that could be utilized, just helping the physician at the front line this determine which patient needs to go in and needs to get 
go out. In your area of specialty, where you have orthostatic hypotension, a group of complex patients with autonomic disorders, can you tell us about this group of patients who are very symptomatic? Well, generally, those are patients that the syncope is just the epiphenomenon of a more chronic disorder of reduced orthostatic tolerance. So those are patients that is not just that today they had a syncope and then they go on with their life like nothing happened. These are patients that are always symptomatic to some extent. That's a big differentiating factor. Patient with disorder of reduced orthostatic tolerance such as post-orthopicardia syndrome, et cetera, they have a lot of other symptoms. While this, the typical syncope patient, the typical vasovagal patient complains only that they had the fainting spell, that's about it. So very different scenario. The patient with POTS, again, can have syncope eventually. And the patient with orthostatic hypotension will be at higher risk of syncope, even sometimes if they're not symptomatic. That's a problem in the elderly. Oftentimes, they have either atypical symptoms, but a good third of them may have orthostatic hypotension without being aware of it. It still makes them at high risk for fainting and for falls that are unexplained because then the patient doesn't remember. So very important to recognize that. And even if the patient may be asymptomatic today, all it takes is to have another orthostatic stressor or gravitational stressor tomorrow, like they may be a little bit more dehydrated than usual and boom, down they go. So that's really where we have the biggest role. And so for them, you do have, what kind of testing do you do? I know the autonomic function test. Can you just describe the testing and the usual management? I know it's a, it's a different and a bigger topic, but since these patients are at risk for either pre-syncopal, syncopal, and even they're always, at, they're always scared. In fact, sometimes the physician is as scared as the patient who's True. taking care of these patients, of how True. to manage these patients. The autonomic study are very important because first of all, they allow us to say, does the patient have a more pervasive autonomic dysfunction or not? How severe is the autonomic instability? A pure patient with vasovagal syncope, unless we capture one during the study, the study will be completely normal. So that's generally very reassuring for the patient. If I have a patient with orthostatic hypotension, I should be able to see it. And there are a lot of parameters that we look at during the study but basically boils down to assessing the capacity of generating a good vasoconstrictor response and generating a appropriate cardiac response to fight the drop in blood pressure. So we have a bunch of parameters that we look for uh, there. And the other thing is uh, um, to recognize if the patient describes symptoms of lightheadedness and dizziness, they have nothing to do with hemodynamic instability. We're seeing a lot of these patients. I'm sure you see a lot of these. These are these uh, persistent postural perceptual dizziness patients. And uh, patients sometimes have a very hard time in separating one dizziness from one lightheadedness. They just say, well, I'm dizzy, I'm lightheaded. What else can I tell you? So sometimes you get in the story, you can differentiate between the two, but other times you don't. You put in a tilt study, they are hemodynamically stable, they complain of dizziness and lightheadedness, then the diagnosis is made. So I think it's very helpful. You always have to keep in mind all the possibilities because sometimes our judgment uh, may not be that great, not necessarily because we are poor, 
judging, but maybe because we don't have good enough data to make a good uh, diagnosis. And I think it was very interesting from the uh, Canadian study, how much weight they still put on the physician opinion, which it's, it's a good, uh, good thing. And I don't know how much uh, more study they've done. I know they wanted to run more trials to validate the score. I know they've done studies, but as far as I know, it's been only in Canada. I don't think it's something that's uh, taken a lot of I, I do agree with you. The field of syncope is evolving. I mean, the cardiology services, they have a 76-page document on syncope, basically focusing on their side of it, the arrhythmias, the bradyarrhythmias, and the tachyarrhythmias, and the obstructive cardiac problems like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or the valvular problem. So there is an evolving field, and that's why history taking is so very important. Listening to the patient is so very important. I don't think uh, the kind of patients you're talking about, the POT syndrome and others, they would probably be recurrent. So they are not just the first presentation that sometimes is seen in the ED. And some of the patients might have more, more than one cause of syncope. They cannot have other causes. This brings us to the most difficult part of my job when I really need the help of a neurologist is the functional syncope. And it's always uh, problematic when we label somebody as a functional syncope. So it has to be done with great amount of respect, looking at all the different areas. It becomes a very expensive endeavor. In fact, uh, one would think that the functional would be most the cheapest diagnosis, but it becomes the most expensive because you do a lot. But from the standpoint of a physician, you did mention some of the signs. Uh, what are we looking for? I mean, I think most of us that have been uh, around the block a few years, you kind of sometimes have a sense when the patient talks to you if it's going to be a functional patient or not. It's very difficult to, to ignore that gestalt feeling that you get. And sometimes I try not to bias myself. On the other hand, that's what really makes the art beyond the science. You know, recognizing patients right away. And it's not that you want to label the patient as functional, but if you want to help them, you, you need to have the right diagnosis. So as you pointed out, though, yes, it becomes always very expensive. You don't have a, a test that says, yes, this is functional. You have to prove it. That is not something else, generally, unless the patient is kind enough that performs in front of you. And I had this situation that makes my life obviously a lot easier, but doesn't happen all the time. And uh, always you have to keep in mind, am I missing something else? I think one of the most challenging patients for us is indeed a patient with seizure that also has pseudo seizures. And the only way is honestly to put them in the epilepsy monitoring unit, hook them up and observe. There are a lot of features that usually you can pick up from uh, testing the patient, evaluating the patient in the office, start sending them for one test or another. And then usually things start to surface. And sometimes then you have to get the family on your side and say, okay, what are the circumstances? Does it always happen in presence of somebody? Does it ever happen the patient is alone? Does it ever happen if the patient is totally relaxed and having fun or it's always if there is a stressful circumstance? So all those things will give you a clue. And generally, there are a lot of very atypical features, um, such as, again, the very prolonged uh, duration of the episode. The patient may act uh, funny afterward, being uh, 
pseudo confused, but uh, in very peculiar ways that raise a lot of eyebrows. Again, they may have some tremulousness and some other features, such as the typical is they resist eye opening, or then they tell you, yes, I could hear everything, but I couldn't answer. Most of the time still that requires very extensive testing to rule out the cardiac side, to rule out the epilepsy side, to rule out autonomic studies, and then you ask uh, the colleagues in psychiatry to help you out. Well, I think uh, you summarized it so very well, Dr. Sandroni. So we have been talking about uh, the topic of syncope with uh, Dr. Paula Sandroni, professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic. What else uh, would you like to us to know about syncope as a parting comment? Can be very benign, but can be uh, very difficult to manage though. So it's still very challenging. That's the word of uh, word of the wise. Thank you, Dr. Sandroni for your talk. And if you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and we'll see you back soon with another edition of our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me.